This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice, a conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Hello again, and welcome to our Theological Reflections on the Criminal Justice System podcast, Hurt with Fetters. I'm Pastor Greg Smith, and here with Jason Karch, author of the book, Hurt with Fetters. And uh, Jason, today we are going to consider or talk about a reflection on law itself as it relates to the overall understanding of how a believer, how a Christian approaches or looks at the criminal justice system. Thank you for joining us today, Jason. Glad to be here, Pastor. Okay, so uh, let's just begin with an overall uh, just thought or consideration of law. When you look at law, when you think of law, that word, what does that mean? How does that play out in real time for you or or, uh, most people, I guess? Well, I think for most people, when they consider the concept of law, they're thinking in terms of state laws, national laws, or whatever, things that uh, are written into or codified by the state or the nation that can change tomorrow or the next legislative session or whatever. And so in most people's minds, laws are not a fixed thing. They're mutable mutable. would be the word. Yeah, they change. You know, so I think that that's the concept in most people's mind is a law is something that, you know, people say, well, this is the problem and this is the way we fixed it. We create a law and, okay, that that solves that problem. And if the problem not solved, we change the law to try to fix try it to some it. other way. Mm-hmm. So theologically, you're coming from a perspective, uh, a, a viewpoint of, you know, belief in God or an understanding that there is a God in heaven who rules and reigns. He is sovereign. How does or should understanding of law be different or change? Well, because all law, you know, it implies a lawgiver. And so when we think about these laws that are state laws or national laws, they're mutable. You know, some legislative body is the lawgiver, the ones that create these laws uh, for the benefit uh, of the people or whatever the case may be, well, theologically, the law of God implies a lawgiver as well, which ultimately is God himself. And I think it's important, too, to think about, when you think about these laws, the law itself reflects the lawgiver. And that'll become an important part of the discussion in this particular reflection because, you know, if laws are mutable, then, and they reflect the lawgiver, then how can we trust that our lawgivers, you know, are going to be consistent with the way that they manage the law, create the law, all of those kind of things. Whereas from a theological perspective, we know that God never changes. He is immutable. And as a lawgiver, we can trust that he will never switch up on us. Okay, so when I'm thinking of the law of God, I would think that maybe most people would think of the Ten Commandments, okay? Ten Commandments given by God to Moses back at Mount Sinai. 
beginning with thou shalt have no other gods before me, going down to thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's property. And so I, I guess, so those laws, this law of God, that, uh, that might be understood or, or codified in the Ten Commandments have not changed in now, say, 3,500 years, 3,400 years or so, whenever you date Moses. So how does the immutable law of God connect to, or, or how does that feed our understanding then of, of state law or federal law? Because, because there's been some, some controversy about whether the Ten Commandments can even be displayed in a courtroom. You know, I'll bring that up in the chapter where ACLU lawsuits challenged the constitutionality of displaying the Ten Commandments in a courtroom in Alabama and again in Kentucky. And they argued that these displays violates that constitutional standard of a separation between church and state because the Ten Commandments are specifically uh, religious. Uh, the nature of the law is religious. And I think that becomes a problem because, again, all law implies a lawgiver. There has to be some underlying standard for our understanding of law itself. And so previously, you know, we've discussed this uh, competition of narratives. And for the Christian, we cannot allow ourselves to buy into uh, the current narrative of criminal justice. We have to buy into the Christian narrative that shapes our heart, our mind, our vision, in reference to, you know, how we understand crime, how we prosecute crime, uh, how we punish crime, and all of that is done through the law. And so we have to maintain that Christian narrative that even shapes our understanding of the law. And so when you think about Moses in the Ten Commandments, basically there's two tables. Uh, the first table deals with how humanity relates to God. The second table is how we relate to one another. Well, how did Jesus summarize the law? Love God, love your neighbor. Love God and love your neighbor. And so ultimately, what I want people to understand is that law is based on love. Now, the foundation of the law and the goal of the law is love. And if we look at it from this secular perspective that we have today, is that what we see? And as Christians, you know, we have to have our eyes wide open when we're looking at these things and have to ask those hard questions. So let's try to make the distinction. What is, or what would you say is a secular then understanding of the law? So if we have discounted the Ten Commandments, and I think in most of those lawsuits that were brought against the courthouses or whatnot, and I know that in the Supreme Court building, for example, the Ten Commandments are etched in stone there, right? So they're not going to be, be changed. But a typical understanding, I think, uh, you know, a secular understanding or understanding of the world is, is that our law is not based upon the Ten Commandments, maybe informed by it. But so, so what is a, so what is the typical or the current, apart from God, the secular understanding of law? How would you characterize that? You know, as we mentioned uh, previously, so kind of the, the methodological foundation for uh, the way law is built today is comes directly from you know, the, the philosophical system of legal positivism. You know, and any positivistic understanding of the nature of law doesn't even account for anything supernatural, certainly will not 
lend itself to an understanding of the reality of God on any level. Okay, legal positivism. Let's let's pause right here and just define that for just a second. Okay, well think about the soft sciences like psychology or sociology. And so sociology was born out of a philosophical movement called logical positivism by people like uh, A.J. Ayer, Augusta Comte. And so as a kind of an offshoot of that becomes this idea of legal positivism, kind of the foundational axiom for logical positivism was this uh, principle of verification. Right? So if something cannot be empirically verified, then you have to do away with it. Well, the principle itself can't be empirically verified. Hmm. You know, so logical positivism ended up caving in on itself as a philosophical system and just going away almost as uh, a philosophical joke. You know, how did people even take this so serious with such intensity for the time that it lasted? You know, because it's ridiculous. Okay. However, vestiges of the little branch off of that within legal positivism still has a very tight grip on Western understandings of law, how we process uh, certain sociological concepts. They won't call it legal positivism today, but that's what's being taught when it comes to uh, these things so when you think about sociology as a branch of sociology you have criminal justice you know me right here in the state of Texas Sam Houston State University I think it has George John Vito Center of Criminal Justice Vito was one which of is them, a branch of sociology which is a branch of sociology criminology is a branch of sociology penology is a branch of sociology and all of this, the foundation for all of this, is born out of logical positivism. Okay, so if law in itself implies a lawgiver, and all law is a reflection of the lawgiver, you do away with God. So if God's not the lawgiver, under the legal positivistic understanding of law, who or what is the lawgiver? Well, legislative bodies. And so what determines that for the legislators are social conditions. There are no ontological realities that determine what is right or wrong in reference to the law. It's these social conditions that become determinative of you know, what is right or wrong, how we articulate our laws, how we define our laws, all of this stuff. So the lawgiver, state legislatures, but they are informed by sociology right I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to process exactly I, if I'm trying to put myself in the place suppose I get elected to the state legislature okay so I go sit there and now I'm on some committee or something that's trying to determine what the law should be do we need to change them or whatnot what is a, informing my my decision so if I'm not coming at this from a theological perspective that there's a God and this is what God says I'm coming at it from some other sociological perspective. What is it that informs me to write or to codify the things that you know I've come to decide need to be? Well, I think you're you know obviously there's a certain amount of pressure on you from your constituents to make this particular law in reference to whatever. Okay. Now, obviously, 
you know, if you can get enough of your colleagues on board and the law, you know, passes, it's signed into uh, law by the governor or the president, if we're talking about on a national level, then the law then is turned over to the people who administer this law. Not necessarily they create it, but now they administer it. The criminal justice system. Yeah, or even if it's civil laws or whatever. There's somebody else besides the legislator that is responsible for the administration of this law. If it's criminal law, then, you know, it's transferred in over beyond that to the people who prosecute the law once it's violated, delve out punishments for the law, make sure that the punishment is carried out. So all, all of these things here. So I don't think the legislator naturally has in his mind legal positivism, but those who administer the law do. Now, I do think that one of the, the aspects of legal positivism that is in the mind of the legislator is there is a distinction between good people and bad people that we go back to, you know, in our previous uh, discussions. You know, there is a, a, a marked distinction uh, in the minds of people directly as a result of legal positivism between uh, a, a class of good people and a class of bad people. And it's the responsibility of the good people. Obviously, the legislator would consider himself one of the good guys with this elected responsibility to deal adequately with the bad. And who elects the legislator? The good people. He's probably the okay. good people. He's probably thinking. So he is motivated to write or to pass laws that benefit or affect those folks. Would that what you say? Or or would you say that majority opinion decides what is legal or illegal or right or wrong? Is that the way we make those type of decisions? Is it majority or is it, uh, you know, like you say, good people versus bad people? If I'm a state legislature or a federal legislator and tasked with deciding what is right or wrong or what is legal or illegal, my constituents are going to have a big say in that, and if my constituents are telling me make this illegal, I'm probably going to do that, right? Exactly. Now, when you think about the majority, I don't necessarily know if it always works itself out into it. Ideally, it's supposed to work itself out like that, but I don't know that it always does. You know, we've seen instances to where, you know, the highest court in this land has run counter to the majority of the American public on certain issues, you know, where they've catered to uh, special interest groups uh, that make up, you know, two, three, four percent, you know, of the American population. So I don't know if it, if it always works itself out like that, but I make a point in here to say, you know, even as far back as, as Plato, you know, where Plato says in every case the laws are made by the ruling party in its own interest. And so whoever sees themselves as this group of good people with the responsibility to deal adequately with the bad, the laws are naturally going to be in their own interest. Okay, so laws are created in the interest of the powerful or the good people, right? But isn't there some type of uh, legal theory that, you know, the state, and I don't necessarily mean, you know, the state state but maybe the federal state is created and designed to protect the weakest among us and so laws then are created to protect the weak which would not necessarily be 
just the good people versus the bad people. But, you know, for example, I, I was just thinking, so why is it illegal to steal? Well, theoretically, a strong person steals from a weaker person. So a law is created to deal with the person who violates the rights of someone who is in a more vulnerable position or the weaker. So, so isn't law created to take care of the most vulnerable or the weakest among us? Well, define vulnerable or weak. You know, because if we're talking about people who are economically vulnerable or weak, most thieves, you know, are much more economically vulnerable or weaker than those that they're stealing from nine times out of ten. But even in that, you know, we can think about, I mean, it's been all over the news uh, in the last several weeks, you know, the Supreme Court's decision to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. You know, so that's an instance where, you know, the last 45 or 50 years where the most weak and vulnerable of our society were not protected by the law. Okay, but in theory, that is, that, that would be the... Th- the theory would the would the administration of that then actually be the problem or the administration of law and by that I mean you know the old saying if you have enough money you can get away with murder so if you have enough money regardless of what you do you can hire a lawyer you can get you know advanced legal team we've seen this time and time again in our society in our system where people who have enough money and have a powerful enough attorney and enough resources can basically get the, get away with almost anything. Where someone who does not have those type of resources, and maybe in your instance, you know, might have a public defender or someone who may be motivated by other things rather than what's in best interest of my client. And I'm not trying to make any type of statement about you know public defenders, but but that might be the case. So is it more of the administration of justice? Or, or the administration of the law rather than the law itself. Again, you know, laws reflect the lawgiver. And so where did the law come from? The law that's being administrated, where did that come from? You know, it came from those who made the law. You know, so I think it's tied together. I don't think you can separate the administration of the law from, you know, the ones that are creating the law. Okay, so let's move then to the theological understanding of of law, lawgiver. And so for so for a believer, for a Christian, uh, you're right that theologically all law is derived from God. And so because he's the ultimate lawgiver, it is him who serves as a standard for the law. So God, from a theological perspective, is the standard for law. But you also say there's a great deal of confusion as to what the law of God is. So unpack that just a little bit. How, how would we articulate the law of God more so than just Ten Commandments, for example? Yeah, so some theologians would say that the law of God is only the law given directly by God. And some would say, well... So that would be the thou shalt nots or thou shalt. Yeah, those things. And that all of our human law then becomes, you know, simply derivations of uh, the law of God. You know, you mentioned why, you know, why not, why don't we steal? Why do we have restrictions on theft? You know, well, however, our human laws 
about theft work themselves out, you know, some theologians will see, well, because God said, Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not steal, you know, so however we hash that out down here on a human level, we're not going to tolerate thievery around here, you know. But other distinctions come from what they call natural law or positive law. And so, you know, that can easily become confusing theologically when you when you try to understand that. But a further distinction among theologians, try to, they try to help understand, okay, well, when you think about the law of God, you know, uh, is that specifically the law given by God or does it work itself out in terms of natural law as well? Is that a result of God's wisdom or is it a result of God's will? You know, some theologians would say that, well, now it comes from the wisdom of God. Aquinas would be one of those. One of those. Uh, and some would say, well, now it comes from the will of God. An example I use of that is Duns Scotus, uh, which some people would say that it comes uh, all the way from Augustine, who would associate the law of God with the will of God. But Augustine takes this a step further and says that all law, even if it comes from the will of God, the will of God towards human beings is always an expression of love. You know, so the law of God itself as being a result of God's will is loving. Because God is love. Because God is love. And so God provides a law because he loves us. So just a thought. What was the very first law? Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are created by God. They're placed in perfection and everything. And God says... You can have anything you want. It, it, it is all yours. I created all this for you. It's all good. It's for, oh, by the way, there's one tree over there. The tree of knowledge of good and evil belongs to me. Don't eat from it. You eat from it, that day you're going to die. So theoretically or theologically, that was the first law. So how is that an expression of the love of God to tell Adam and Eve, okay, I'm restricting you from this? Well, we don't, I mean, we can think about what the tree was, why it was there, but who knows, you know, in the, in the mind of God, what function did this tree have in the created order? In creation itself, what role did it serve other than the prohibition? We always look at the prohibition. Well, if God would have put this tree here, would have told Adam not to eat it, then we'd have never had these problems. Well, we don't know. Maybe this particular tree whatever buds were on this tree may have pollinated something that was necessary for certain types of life in the garden. We don't know what function this tree played in the garden. Well, whatever function it was, whatever it was there, God said, don't eat of it. And I think the prohibition to eat was not just an arbitrary, don't do this because I'm a mean guy and I don't want you to have something that would otherwise be good for you. No, I love you. And don't do this because in the day that you do it, you're going to die. So maybe just to think, you know, in a, a modern sense, a parent might tell a child, don't play in the street, for example. child doesn't know why, and maybe he doesn't understand why. He just knows he likes to play, and uh, there's plenty of room out in the street. So why can't I just go play in the street? So, I, you know, mom and dad, they don't know, or maybe they don't love me. They're trying to keep something from me, so I go play in the street, then get run over by a car. I guess 
Yeah, or even maybe in a crude that, way. Why was I? You know, why did you know when I was born? Why'd y'all bring me to a home with a street in front of it? If you didn't want me to play in the street, right? Why didn't we have a house in the country? You know, with no streets. Good point. Good point. So theologically, the law is an expression of the love of God. It is an expression of the love of God. And this is why the fulfillment of the law, as Jesus articulated, love God, love your neighbor. So love is directed upward, love is directed outward, and if I love, I've kept the law from a theological sense. So I I suppose if I love you, I'm not going to rob from you, I'm not going to kill you, I'm not going to run you over with my car or you know, whatever it is, which kind of makes a lot of sense. So if if that's the reality, as a believer then, how should I consider then, if that's true, if my faith tells me that God is love and that God is the lawgiver and his law is an expression of his love, then how does that inform or change my perspective or understanding or thoughts about criminal justice system or secular law or, you know, the, the law of man, I suppose. You know, when you think about, you know, secular understandings of law that are, you know, determined by some prior social conditions or whatever, uh, there's never a focus on an ontological reality for the existence of law. Well, when love is factored into this equation, when the foundation of law is the love of God, well, now we have an ontological basis for the existence, for the reality of the law. And that takes us a step back and makes us think about the concept of justice in terms of, you know, being right, in terms of our equity with one another. Are we out of love treating one another equally in the way that we craft our laws, in the way that we administer our laws, in the way that we prosecute violations of the law, in the way that we punish violations of the law. Love becomes a determining factor in all of those things. And we have to ask ourselves as Christians, is that what's really going on? You know, and if not, then like we talked about, you know, a few weeks ago, Christians still have a very powerful voice in this country. If they are in the ear of their representatives when they go to make these laws, then, you know, they have to heed the voice, ideally, or theoretically, of their constituents. And so they're not going to put forth or sign on to potential laws that run contrary to the wishes of their uh, constituents. And so we have a voice in how law is understood. I mean... You know, legal positivism wasn't around when the Constitution was written. You know, this become, you know, laid over the top of our foundational understandings of law later on. And so in the same way that was able to take priority in terms of our understanding of the law, we can take a step back and overlay it with a new perspective. So, again, just thinking uh, theologically, if I'm a Christian, if I'm a believer, if I have new life in Christ, Christ lives within me, then the love of God... Scripture says, is King James says shed abroad, or it's or or it's poured into me, or it's filled up. So the love of God dwells within me. Okay, now that love is a spiritual reality in my life through Christ. Then the law then becomes an 
outworking or, out, or expression of that. You, because I'm, I'm mentioning this because you uh, say that as humans, when God created us in his image and likeness by an act of creative will, he placed his law in our hearts. And so if the love of God has transformed us and the law of God is present within us, then, and, and it's informed or it's covered by that love, then it affects or it changes the way that I perceive or think about or deal with or talk about aspects of the criminal justice system, I suppose. I, I, and I'm just kind of talking right now. I want you to maybe to respond to this overall, but I'm thinking from, a, from an individual who has never spent time in prison, as I mentioned before, drove by you know, this prison many times and thought, well, those guys who are in there are probably getting what they deserve. I mean, you know, they broke the law. You know, you do the crime, you do the time, right? So what difference does it make to me? And I'm sure that everything is fair and equitable because, you know, I got a government, I trust the government to do that. Uh, and by the way, I've never done anything that I got caught for to go to prison. So what difference does it make to me, right? So if that's my attitude, that's not, I'm, I'm not acting out of love or I'm not walking in love or I'm not expressing the love of God. I might love God. I might say that I love God, but I'm certainly not loving my neighbor because I've come to decide that you're my neighbor. And all these guys in here are my neighbor. So how, what I do, I can't just then sit by and go, oh, well, yeah, this is not fair. This is not right. Oh, well. Yeah, of course not. And again, you know, the, the, the reality of prison is is not going away but I think that we can do a better job when it comes to thinking about laws we have to as Christians try to discern whether or not there is a, a moral basis from which these particular types of laws emerge in my case I have a robbery case is there a moral basis for why people shouldn't rob one another well I think there is you know, so once we make that determination, then we have to ask how violations of this particular law, the way that it's prosecuted and punished, whether that calls us into, you know, the natural solidarity we share as human beings and moves us towards our natural responsibility to love and to serve one another. Now, I think that is where we fall short. You know, so yeah, you know, when somebody messes up, we can still look at them with a, a sense of responsibility and say, hey, you know, they're, they're my neighbor. They're no different than I am. And because of the equality we share, first and foremost, as human beings, and then second, as sinners who have violated the law of God, how do we still deal with one another in love? That is where I think that we can do a better job within the criminal justice system. So, Jason, you write, Inasmuch as the law of love is written on our hearts, because of sin, God gave us a written reminder of the ontological basis for law so that God's will for our participation in, its selfless, in His selfless love is not fully eclipsed by the selfishness of sin. Could you just unpack that for just a second? So, the law of love written on our hearts... 
But because of sin, God gave us this written reminder, which is the ontological basis for law, so that God's will for our participation in his selfless love is not fully eclipsed by the selfishness of sin. You just think about Romans 1, where the apostle says, you know, that even the Gentiles who are without the law naturally do what the righteous requirements of the law demand. So there is a sense in which this moral understanding of the law of God is, is written into our very being. You know, we can't escape that. Now, we can suppress it, try to deny it, or whatever, but it's there. And so, even though we are sinners, you know, that has not eclipsed, you know, what God has placed into our hearts in reference to His law and to His love. People, people want to be loved. Now, they may put on a, a, an exterior to say that, you know, that's not what they want or, or whatever. But even somebody that's out there just doing, you know, whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, if they have a, a, a loving voice of correction in their life, you know, they may not acknowledge it, but they appreciate that. So we experience that, you know, here in, in, in multiple ways. You have young men here who grew up without a father without any real male influence in their life and they do something dumb you know they're acting crazy and we'll go and tell them hey man you don't you don't need to be acting like that get yourself together they're like little boys you know humbly oh yeah man appreciate that man i was tripping or whatever the case may be but now on the flip side of that let an officer tell them something and see what happens and they'll explode you know, they end up and the getting, difference is authority versus love? Well, how they or? perceive this. Because it may it this genuinely may be an officer that cares, but that has not been their experience with the system. But f from us, they realize that we care. And from yeah. us, you mean from field ministers or other, you know, ministers in the in white, meaning yes. white. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, men who have, have given their life to Christ and they want to see other people be successful and, and, and you know and have their lives transformed and so if you love somebody you know they're they're open to correction in that way so I think that even they may not be believers but there's still vestiges of that written on their hearts where they understand God's law his love so when the law is established based upon the reality of love and the love of God when human law or man's law violates that or does not follow that, I'm trying to get back to just a response or the way of thinking as a child of God. And you write, we have to discern the moral basis for which secular human law springs, if there is any, and discern whether it calls us into our natural solidarity as humans and toward a natural responsibility to love and to serve one another. So based upon love, we have a responsibility to God, to love God. We have a responsibility to one another, to love one another. This informs the way we understand law, consider law, follow how law is practiced or how it is uh, enforced or the way you know, uh, law is administered. But what if, so what if we discern that the moral basis from which our secular human law springs is not God's law. Or if we discern 
that that this law or the way it's administered does not call us into natural solidarity with one another that instead divides what should we do well i think believers have a voice you know and i think for we go back to you know when you think about you know pastors or christian leaders you know i think that they need to make their their people aware instances uh, where that is not the case and i think that one of the ways in which pastors did a you know, and Christian leaders did a, an outstanding job of that was where they saw the injustices built into, like, Roe versus Wade. You know, the last 45, 50 years, there was a consistent cry from Christian voices uh, against that. Now, it took a long, long time, but, you know, an, a significant victory was won in reference to that particular piece of legislation. You know, there was a discerning among Christian people, you know, was there a moral basis you know, for this? And if there wasn't, then is this an expression of our, our natural solidarity with other human beings, particularly the unborn? Uh, and obviously it wasn't, you know, there was no love uh, expressed there. And so I think that's an instance where Christian voices can be heard in reference to correcting laws. And so if you translate that to the way the criminal justice system administers justice, the way it treats those who have been convicted of crime, the way it institutionalizes them, whatever, as a child of God, and I, I'm trying to just to make sure that, that we come to understanding of what we are, you know, to do or be, because, because we started this with, you know, how does the law, how does this relate to you know, the overall understanding of criminal justice. And so as a child of God, I want to think theologically. That, that is my, you know, I say that God is the center. And if he is, then I want to think theologically. I want to, I want to look at things from his perspective. I do want to love God. I want to love my fellow man. How does that come to bear in the criminal justice system? So if I would perceive or understand or believe that sociology is the condition or the foundation of moral law rather than or man's law rather than love then I need to I need to let my voice be heard I need to let my prayers be heard as well I mean I need to act in ways you know the illustration you used was of the issue of the unborn or Roe versus Wade so if I translate all of that to uh, you know to the way that criminal justice is administered to, to adults, you know, beginning, and I suppose, you know, because I know that there have been young men incarcerated, you know, beginning at the age of 14 uh, as an adult, you know, so there are some, uh, there are some crimes that can be committed by, say, a 14-year-old, and he's tried as an adult. Murder, I suppose, is, is one of those. I need to, I need to consider these things and, and let my voice be heard, because you, you, you write very, articulately I think and and this is a to me and I've, I've said about all this that it's kind of a wake-up call but you say when sociology becomes the methodological foundation for the modern concept of the nature of law there is no theological accounting of God as the ultimate lawgiver so theologically this constitutes an abandonment of law how so well because remember if sociology as a science is born out of 
logical positivism. Logical positivism gives no accounting for anything supernatural. You know, it would it would laugh at any theological understanding of law itself. So sociologically, if we use sociology as some methodological foundation for the reality of law, then from the outset we have lost a real theological accounting for the reality of law. And not only that, what becomes determinative uh, for law for us are these arbitrary, changing, mutable social conditions, and there is no ontological reality for love. So one day, one day you and I could be on somewhat equal footing uh, as neighbors, and because of some law that's created based on some social condition, because you know, I got less hair than you do. Well, now, you know, based on this arbitrary thing, I don't have the same rights as you do anymore. Matter of fact, I'm hunted or whatever the case may be. Or maybe to put it in, uh, you know, in like a historical sense, Nazi Germany, 1930s. If you're Jewish, you lose all your rights simply by the fact that you, you know, of your religion. So you lose all of your basic human rights for that. Yeah, That's a very, that was a very arbitrary, or maybe even functionality in society. So if you uh, stutter or you have a limp or something, or another way to think of it, I guess, and I'm just kind of talking out loud now or thinking, so uh, someone who is Downs or something like that lose all their human rights. So if you take them out, I mean, that's a possibility. That, that, that could be the, the logical outflow of this. This is the reason you have to come back to God as the lawgiver. Yeah, it has to be something beyond social conditions. There has to be an ontological reality for, for law. And I think that the Christian worldview, the Christian narrative, gives us the strongest and most viable ontological reality of law in the reality of the love of God. That is a very strong thought or statement and a very powerful one. So the next step then we're going to take is, uh, is toward love then. So if law, the law of God is an expression of his love, we really need to come back and understand the concept of love or the love of God. And so in our next episode, we're going to take a reflection on love. Well, that ends our time uh, today, Jason. Thank you for your insight and your thoughts. May those of you who have joined us today and are listening to our podcast, and again, thank you for listening. Uh, we pray God's blessings upon you, and may we all love like God loves. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.